Welcome to Automation Chat. I'm your host, Teresa Hauk, Executive Editor of the Journal from Rockwell Automation and our Partner Network magazine. Today we talk about misconceptions about electrical shock. We're joined by two guests, Mark Pollack, Global Product Manager with Rockwell Automation and Compass Product Partner LittleFuse, and Terry Becker, Electrical Safety Specialist and Management Consultant of TW Becker Electrical Safety Consulting. We talk about what contributes to severity of a shock, how NFPA 70E and CSA Z462 updates have affected trends and safety incidents, the long-term effects of getting shocked, gaps in electrical safety training that urgently need addressed, how industrial GFCIs work, why risk assessments are important and how to conduct them, why UL 943C is important, and more. But first, it's time for our family-friendly silly joke of the day. All right, so far this one's my favorite. How do you make antifreeze? You steal her pajamas. Right, when you're done laughing, listen up because I have a great conversation with Mark and Terry and you'll learn a lot, so let's dive in. Hi, Mike and Terry. I'm so excited to chat with you about electrical safety and I know our listeners are gonna learn a lot from you. So thank you for joining me. Well, thanks, Teresa. Thanks for having us. Now, I had the pleasure of attending your webinar on May 28th called Misconceptions of Shock Safety. So today I'd like to talk about some of the key topics you covered. And by the way, I've put the link to the On Demand webinar in our episode description so listeners can view it too because it really is informative. So why don't we start with you, Mark? It sounds simple, but it really isn't. Tell us what contributes to the severity of shock. Sure. So there are a few factors we talk about when we look at uh, the, the shock severity. And the first is the path through the body. And that plays a significant role as it determines whether the current you know, may go through your heart muscle or whether it's going through other organs or other parts of your body that could receive thermal injuries uh, from, that, from that current. So there's a couple main examples we talk about. There can be you know, hand-to-hand contact, which would be a touch potential. There could also be a foot-to-foot step which is a step potential and there could be a hand to foot as well which would be a a touch step potential now in addition to uh, the path through the body uh, the magnitude of current is also very important and even very small currents you know measured in tens of milliamps if they're sustained could be fatal depending on the path that they do take through the body and third the duration of time of that shock is also a, a very important factor and there is a time current relationship there that's outlined in the standards that dictate how fast that current needs to be removed in order to protect people so that that relationship from uh, magnitude and time is, is is important so those are the three main factors we, we look at for shock severity and are electrical workers familiar with the real dangers or are they more focused on arc flash well, I think that, you know, historically, some of the training that has been going on, it tends to get a lot of play on, on arc flash risks. And there, there are arc flash risks out there. But I think that, you know, shock is maybe sometimes downplayed as something that is just a part of the job when, you know, there certainly are things we can do to, to look at that and to do proper risk assessments. And, uh, you know, Terry might have more to add to that, but that, that's my initial thought. Okay, and talk to me about how standards like NFPA 70E and CSA Z462 updates have affected trends and safety incidents. Sure. So if you go back to 
statistics that show electrical fatalities, they, they do show a decline you know, from the early 2000s until now. And in particular, around about 2006, 2007, there was some update that pulled electrical safety requirements from the NFPA 70E standard. And if you look at the fatality information, there was a very steady decline after that was implemented. And there was a couple of things involved in that. There was some added safety design criteria, such as added GFCI protection for temporary wiring and for maintenance and repair purposes. So there was a very good decline there initially. Now, to fast forward a little bit until the newest editions of NFPA 70E and CSA Z462, the hierarchy of risk controls is now featured in NFPA 70E specifically. And when we look at you know, that information in that hierarchy of risk controls, it previously was an informational note, now as part of the uh, requirements you know, in Article 110. And one item to highlight there is human error. So that's something that is understood to be one of the leading causes of incidents and injuries is somebody maybe for putting on the wrong equipment or um, not deciding not to put the equipment on at all. So that hierarchy of risk controls is something that shows how we can do a risk assessment and where we can focus our energy on having the biggest impact. So we need to shift to the top three items of that pyramid, which you know are elimination, substitution, engineering controls, and doing a risk assessment on all the individual work tasks in order to have the best benefit and in terms of CSA Z462, the updates that have happened in the recent edition on both sides with NFPA and with uh, the CSA Z462 is to bring those documents into harmony so that that is something that can help when companies are applying those documents uh, across borders. And Terry, speaking of risk assessments, I know those are very important. So explain why we need those a little bit more, expand on that, and how companies know how to perform them. Like, is there somewhere where they can get guidance for those? Well, Teresa, yeah, and Mark mentioned risk assessment, and it's really a core requirement of NFPA 70 and Z462 in the latest editions. And, you know, they they do provide specific direction at a high level. And then, you know, employers have to look to existing occupational health and safety management system standards for direction. Uh, There's They exist for Canada and U.S., uh, CSA Z45001 for Canada, and ANSI Z10 for the U.S. are occupational health and safety management system standards that provide guidance on hazard identification and risk assessment and applying the hierarchy of risk control methods, which Mark mentioned. The key with risk assessments in 70 and Z462 is they need to be work task-based. Both standards are work task-based, so the employer should really use the information in 70E, and, and uh, it starts with table 130.5C in NFPA 70E, which is the same table in Z462 called table 2, and it's a work task table. So employers should do work task-based qualitative risk assessments, which is what I recommend. But what I find is that I think uh, there's a gap in the training that Mark already mentioned, that the, the training doesn't cover risk assessment procedure uh, and, the, and the overall risk assessment. I think it's it's a huge gap, actually, from the company providing the training or the instructor at the front that maybe isn't familiar with doing risk assessments. But there is information in those occupational health and safety management system standards about doing work, you know, in this case, I said qualitative work ta- task-based risk assessments. So you really start with a, a risk matrix. And if you search for risk matrices, it it's going to be quite overwhelming, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that complicated. So the employer really needs to have either the safety professional or if it's an electrical engineer or the E&I maintenance supervisor, understand this overall risk assessment and use a matrix, use a risk register table. Um, within that overall risk assessment procedure, there has to be two individual risk assessments, the shock risk assessment 
and the arc flash risk assessment. And those are detailed specifically in NFPA 70E and CSA Z462. And you do this qualitative risk assessment to compare potential severity of injury or damage to health to like of occurrence. And then you apply the hierarchy of risk control methods to reduce the residual risk, right, to as low as reasonably practicable. So there's some new language here as well, risk language that you have to become familiar with, not only as the employer, but as the employee. And again, this should be covered in the training, uh, the overall risk assessment procedure, but I don't believe it is. What is covered in the training is to do a shock risk assessment, an arc flash risk assessment, but that is not this overall risk assessment procedure that's documented in NFPA 70 and, and CSA Z462. My opinion is the employer's electrical safety program should be where the risk assessment procedure and the, the matrix and, and the risk register table and an explanation of this risk assessment procedure is actually identified uh, and, uh, and put forward to be applied uh, by the employer with the employee's participation. And uh, as, as a note, these should be committee-based risk assessments. And it, again, doesn't have to be a large committee, but it should be management, supervision, worker representation. And you have a meeting and, and discuss the potential severity of injury or damage to health and like of occurrence and how we can apply the hierarchy of risk control methods to reduce risk. Mark mentioned those risk control methods. The first one's elimination, then substitution, then engineering safety by design or prevention through design, warning signs and barricading, training and procedures, and PP is last. So arc flash and shock PP should be the last consideration. Elimination should be the first. And when you do the risk assessment, the employer should put focus on substitution and, and safety by design or prevention through design. But unfortunately, those take you know proactive identification and, and some budgeting and some time to retrofit your electrical equipment or to specify in you know the safety by design, prevention through design at the design phase, or like I said, if you're retrofitting systems. So a long-winded explanation, but it's it's not that complicated. But again, the training will lack uh, again a review of this risk assessment procedure that I'm mentioning and just focus on the two individual uh, shock risk assessment and arc flash risk assessments. The industrial division of Littlefuse delivers vital products to address customer needs for protection, safe control, and distribution of electrical power in industrial applications. Their product portfolio works to minimize electrical safety hazards, limit equipment damage, improve productivity, and safeguard personnel from injury due to electrical faults. Visit littlefuse.com forward slash industrial safety for webcasts and related content. I'm surprised there's that much room for improvement in training. You know, I'm one of those idealists that thinks everything happens when and how it should. So, Terry, do you see other room for improvement in safety training that needs to be addressed? Well, reason Governor, I highlighted that I believe that all safety training, unfortunately, is far too focused on arc flash, and there isn't enough emphasis on the shock hazard. And you know that's easy to identify when the training is titled arc flash awareness or you know arc flash training, and the word shock doesn't even show up in the title of the training being offered by a vendor. And again, this is I think just a problem that's occurred uh, over the last decade with arc flash having I guess a presence, and, you know, lots of video and, and, and unfortunately a skew in the focus based on the statistics that were reviewed uh, in the safety report and in the webinar. So even the statistics prove that the arcing fault and arc flash exposure to workers isn't as significant as shock, yet the training evolved to talk more about arc flash 
and not shock. Don't get me wrong, it, for electrical workers, there is coverage of shock because it's in the NFPA 7E standards. But from my experience in reviewing and um, discussing training that's been received um, with electricians, they walked away with arc flash and it's very dangerous and the blast pressure, right? And really, the, there was no focus from them to discuss with me the shock hazard. Uh, so again, the shock hazard statistically is where we can prove that both electrical workers and non-electrical workers are being shocked. And then we're having electrocutions, which again is where you don't survive the shock uh, at a significant rate, potentially um, still in North America between CAN-US and an electrical shock that leads to an electrocution once a day. Where statistically arcing faults and arc flash uh, fatalities occurring possibly um, once or twice a year if that. And in Canada, I would even think the statistics would be even less frequent. So there's our flash burns happening, but the shock statistics, if you put more attention on shock and training, both electrical workers and specifically non-electrical workers that use portable cord and plug connected electrical equipment and need to understand that that equipment, if it's not in a good condition or it's damaged, can cause a shock hazard. And then they need to know when they need to use a ground fault circuit interrupter. Again, that's the non-electrical worker, but it's all of us. All of us, even GFCIs in our homes, right, we need to make sure that we even do a, a more job of, of using those correctly by hitting the test and reset button. So the training on our class is overwhelmed industry. My opinion is the shock hazard has been sort of lost, uh, and we need to get that changed uh, in the training that's being provided by different vendors uh, in industry. That's just surprising to me because so many injuries could be avoided. What are some of the long-term effects of getting hit with a, an electrical shock for both the electrical and non-electrical workers? Yeah, no, Teresa. Again, in, in the safety report and in the webinar, uh, Mark talked about some of the short-term effects of, of, of a worker getting exposed to the shock hazard. But I emphasized, and, and I do emphasize when I when speak in industry and when I provide training, that there's long-term effects of being shocked, that specifically electricians who would be more frequently shocked and at low voltages, so for Canada, 750 volts or less, or for the U.S., 1,000 volts or less, that the long-term effects are not known to them. So later on in their career or when they're retired, they may not know that they could have psychological symptoms, neurological symptoms, or physical symptoms that are long-term, right? So psychologically, they could have depression, omnia, anxiety, they could fear electricity, they could have catastrophe moodiness, memory loss, believe it or not, memory loss could be attributed to being shocked multiple times at low voltage as an electrician. Some of the neurological effects could be numbness and headaches and chronic pain and loss of balance. Believe it or not, these are actually documented long-term effects of being shocked. And then physical symptoms, generalized pain, fatigue, um, reduced range of, of motion, point stiffness, I'm not kidding you. These are documented by um, medical doctors who have done some research. And granted, there hasn't been a lot of research, but this information that I'm quoting you is actually documented in a white paper from a Canadian uh, doctor in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, there's another doctor, Joel Fish, in Ontario, Canada, and there has been some white papers and research in the U.S., of the long-term effects of electrical workers being shocked. So while these symptoms, they may not attribute it to them, the fact they were shocked and shocked multiple times. And this could be, you know, 28 volt, 347, could be as high as 480 or 600 volts, or even as low as 120 volts AC single phase. And multiple times at these different voltages over their career could then when they're later on in their career, or when they retire, they could have some of these long-term effects that I've just mentioned. This is a fact, it's not fiction. So if there's an electrician listening to this podcast, uh, 
word and if you have some of these uh, symptoms you should talk to your uh, general practitioner and 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 see if there's something that you could do uh, about them well that is frightening and like i said before so preventable so mark terry mentioned the gfcis are those widely known Um, do people in industry know that industrial gfcis are available and how do they work for industrial circuits yes well you know people are familiar with Class A GFCIs. Um, that's a product that has been around for a long time, you know, and gained a lot of popularity when being mandated in homes in the 1970s. But there's not a lot of folks that are aware of the Class C and D GFCIs. And I think our survey of the, the market showed that it, it's gradually gaining a little more notoriety, but there's still a lot of a lot of people out there that haven't heard of the Class C and D GFCIs uh, that are intended for the industrial applications. Now, they operate, you know, on very similar principles. So a, you know, industrial GFCI would use a current transformer to detect any leakage current that is flowing back to the source outside of the uh, the circuits that are being measured. And there's an integrated, you know, interrupting device that will interrupt the uh, interrupt the power if it detects leakage above the set levels. And that, that's an important part of this because it's a, it must be a packaged unit and tested so that they can really verify the complete time from interrupt from uh, detection through to interruption. So that's a, a key part of product being called a GFCI is to meet those requirements that are laid out in uh, in the UL standard. Now, one thing that is unique in the industrial circuits, so this would be under the UL 943C standard, and is the requirement for a grounding check. And in applications where there's flexible cable or where there's a, a load that's moving around, those flexible cables provide the ground return path. And for a GFCI to operate, it must properly have a return path for that leakage current or that fault current to flow when there is a phase two ground fault. And so the presence of that ground return path from the equipment to the source becomes very critical to make sure that the GFCI is providing protection. So the requirement that was added was to have a circuit that can verify the fact that there is a valid ground from the from the load that comes back to back to the GFCI to the source. So that is one thing that's new. And a related point to this is that you know, customers who are using the Assured Equipment Grounding Program outlined in the OSHA regulations and NEC, that a lot of the manual work is done as part of that to verify the ground continuity, the testing and terminal connection test and documentation. All of that is, you know, can be replaced by using one of these industrial GFCIs that has this grounding check built in. So that can provide not only safety, but can provide some efficiency to the teams as well. And you just mentioned the UL 943C that was released almost eight years ago or so. What, why is that important? Does it only cover grounding or what else does it address? Sure, that's, that's a good question. So the UL 943C standard uh, was an update to the UL 943 standard, which governs the, the GFCIs. And the UL 943 standard defined Class A and really has the device designed for 150 volts line to ground. And when we look at the industrial space, you know, most of the circuits that you know, we're, we're talking about that are being used there, a lot of 480 volt circuits in the US, a lot of 600 volt circuits in Canada, and there wasn't really 
really a people protection standard that was that was given for those voltages. So what well 943C does is provide the outline and the rules for having a GFCI that's providing people protection and shock protection at those voltage levels. Now, many may have ground fault relays or earth leakage relays already in the system, and they may even be set to very sensitive levels, you know, 10 milliamps or even 6 milliamps, but they do connect then to a, another device, you know, such as a breaker or contactor to interrupt the circuit. And there's not necessarily a, a fully tested combination there to meet people protection levels. So the 943 C standard gives a 20 milliamp pickup level and the method to standardize the detection and interruption together in one device to provide the appropriate shock protection in a device. So the standard provides the information about the operating time and it makes sure that that is meeting the appropriate time and current levels in order to provide proper shock protection. Okay, and we need to wrap it up here, but do you have one thought or piece of information you want to leave with our listeners? Yes, and I, I think that to to recap on that, you know, the, the survey result that you know we gathered really showed that the majority of people are still receiving shocks as part of their part of their work environment, and that is something that we really shouldn't accept as a as a norm and as something that we just have to deal with. You know, when you look at the statistics and the data in 2018 in the U.S. in particular, shocks are responsible for all electrically related fatalities, and so this is something that we need to address if we want to make sure we can continue reducing the number of fatalities. So as has been talked about, doing a risk assessment, you know, a task-based risk assessment is a, the key starting point to that. And when you look at the different controls available, focusing on the higher order controls as they're the most effective. So working to eliminate the hazards or substitute or use engineering controls, you know, and engineering by design. And the industrial GFCI is one of the topics or one of the products that could be used in an engineering safety by design. So I think just the thing that I would like to leave is that this is something we need to we need to work on and that shock protection and shock prevention is a really critical part to making an impact in reducing the fatalities that we see today. And there are so many important aspects to this that we could talk about this for hours, but then no one would listen to this podcast. <laughs> so Terry and Mark's free on-demand webinars called Misconceptions of Shock Safety, and it goes into detail about these topics and covers more subjects like how training has evolved and resulting trends in safety incidents and the importance of shock PPE tools and equipment, how and why to ground equipment and more. So you can also, from their resource area on the webinar, download resources. And so I've Put the URL in the episode description. Make sure you check it out. I took the webinar too. It was really good. So it was great talking with you guys. Thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Thanks, Teresa. This has been Automation Chat, and I'm Teresa Hauk. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. You can also help others find us by sharing your favorite episodes with colleagues. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat again. Thank you.